Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I can honestly tell you that the episode you're about to hear with Francis Fry and Ann Morris is truly wonderful. And just before we get going, we have some exciting news to share with you, and we have a special guest to tell you all about it. Hello, listeners. I'm Rhonda Morris, Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer for Chevron. I am here with my colleague, Alan Flickinger, who leads our Global Finance Shared Services Organization. Alan is going to share a short story about a supervisor whose actions had a long-lasting influence on his career and how he leads others. Well, I was working in Angola early in my career, and I was about ready to leave. I'd been there for a few years, and I was moving to a new job. And our production operations general manager must have seen something in me and wanted to develop me. And with a single email to his production superintendent and his offshore personnel said, I want you to come up with a 14-day program for Alan, and here it is. And, uh, you know, I was a finance employee, so this was new to me. I hadn't really spent time offshore. And this was go out to a platform, go out to a rig, go see how a condensate production platform works, spend some time with the guys in the warehouse, spend some time with the guys in the rig, spend the night in a rig, eat greasy food with the guys in the kitchen. And it was, as you can imagine, we were going on helicopters and boats, and it was just absolutely amazing. And I realized how special this experience was for me, but it also left me with this sort of profound debt that I felt like I had to repay over 30 years. And that, I would say, was a turning point in my career. And I vowed to repay that debt in whatever way I could over the rest of my career. And I've tried to do that. And I can't do it on the same scale that this fellow had in his influence over me. And mind you, he had nothing to gain because I was leaving his business unit, but it meant enough for him to see me do this. And so what I've done is with my teams ever since that is tried to repay that debt in small ways and leave them with a debt that they could take with them over the rest of their careers. I've sent them off to the field, not for two weeks, but just to spend a day and shadow somebody in the field for them to learn about our business. I've taken my team inside a dunk tank to do water safety training so we could get an appreciation for what our offshore personnel have to go through from a safety perspective and just many other little things where I think about that note and I've kept that note for 20 years, even though our email systems want to delete it for me. I print it out every once in a while and show people that as a leader, you can use your influence in the smallest ways to create a little bit of a debt that will perpetually need to be repaid. It's pretty special. Thank you so much, Alan, for sharing your story. And thank you as well, Rhonda, for our new partnership. And to all of my listeners, I have to admit the Chevron sponsorship is rather epic for me personally, noting that when we launched our show five years ago, resistance from business to the very notion of bringing heart into workplace leadership remained extremely high. What's evident 100 plus episodes later, however, is that many of our brilliant guests have helped change the minds and hearts of managers all around the world and in many of our largest organizations. And that's really what this sponsorship symbolizes to me. And one last thing before we officially start our show, I want to say thank you to all of you who helped make this day possible. So many of you made it your personal mission to support our podcast and you sent me repeated encouragement to keep it going. Individually, you know who you are. Please be assured of how meaningful that love and support proved to be, and also be assured that I will always be profoundly grateful to you for all of it. And now, let me introduce you to our guest. Many of you will remember that a couple of years ago, Harvard Business School professor Frances Fry joined me here to discuss her brilliant work on trust. 
It proved to be one of the most fun conversations I've ever had on the show, not to mention informative. Her episode is the third most downloaded in the history of this podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have Frances return, this time with her partner and co-author, Ann Morris. You might not know that Frances was the first female professor at Harvard Business School to ever earn tenure. And just this morning, as I was driving home from the gym, I learned that Anne was being interviewed on the TED Radio Hour. Frances and Anne have a new book coming out called Move Fast and Fix Things. The title is a clever challenge to Silicon Valley's belief that by moving fast, things must naturally get broken. As you're about to hear, our guests believe that organizational change initiatives absolutely need to move swiftly in order to succeed, but that any collateral damage is entirely preventable if you have the right methodology. So what is that methodology? Well, you're about to learn. Let me welcome you back to the podcast, Francis Fry, and a warm welcome to you, Anne Morris. We're so thrilled to be here, Mark. Thank you. Oh, I'm very excited. Well, first off, Anne, a special welcome to you. Francis, of course, is a veteran of the show and knows how the game is played. But if you don't mind, I'd like to go personal with you to start this off. This is only the second time that I've had a couple on my show, and I didn't ask them this question that I wanted to, which is... How did you learn to partner so well professionally? Isn't it generally hard to be spouses and collaborate successfully together? I'll start. This is Francis. I think that first it began with fear of missing out. So we just had FOMO. <laughs> one of us was working on something and the other one wanted to work on it. We're natural collaborators with each other. And so we just kept pruning things we did in each other's absence. So I think that was the energy behind it. Yeah, I think what I would add to why it works is that I do think it helps that we have pretty clear individual lanes, but also mm -hmm. a lot of comfort in each other's spaces and wandering in those lanes and also receiving the other in our respective spaces. And I think it comes from a deep respect for each other's strengths and also the fact that we're relatively unbothered by each other's so-called weaknesses. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And I guess I would just add one other thing, which is I'm like 10x better when Anne is around yeah. than when she's not. So there's also an enormous performance gain. I admire you both for this. This is seriously, I asked the question out of curiosity, but I really admire it. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. I'll just add one more thing to what Francis said, which I do think it helps a lot that we know that one plus one is a number bigger than two, which is also, there's also some humility with that awareness. So we're aware of each other's absence when we are going it alone. Well, along those lines, my second question has to do with an honor that you both received recently. The Thinkers 50 organization put you both on their short list for what's been described as the Academy Award for Leadership Authors. In their press release naming you both, they said, quote, the award acknowledges thinkers who shed powerful and original new light on the perennial and yet classic subject of the role of the leader in any team, corporation, or organization. So I looked at the calendar and the winner won't be known until after we publish your episode. So I thought, would you guys like to test out your acceptance speech here? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't, I don't know. It's, I'm a preparer, but even I think it's bad luck to write an acceptance speech in advance. 
I'll start, Francis, which is saying that Thinkers 50 is an incredible organization and community. And I love the, the text of the award that you just read, because as a species, we've been studying this practice of leadership for literally thousands of years. And we're still learning new things about it every day. And we are just thrilled to be part of the community of scholars who gets to explore these questions as part of their day job. And one of the things I particularly enjoy about Thinkers 50 is that they are one of the few organizations that has lots of people in academia, lots of people in business, and is a real cross-section. And it is a community that comes together. And I'm always appreciative of organizations that are doing the work and convening. But if one person from Thinkers 50 of the ecosystem posts online, lots of other people, like it really feels like a community and it's a community that's of service to the world. So it's an honor to be a part of it. I I don't think there's enough knowledge because I can tell you personally, I don't really know that much about it. What is Thinkers 50? It's an organization that I don't know if it started from a list. I don't know its origins, but I know today it's an organization that brings together lots and lots of people. So I think Amy Edmondson is the number Mm -hmm. one management (laughs) thinker in the world. And so they're accurate because she is the number (laughs) one management (laughs) thinker in the world. But it brings together people that are interested in thinking hard about how to make management and leadership better. And it's a beautiful cross-section of age, gender, industry, race, introvert, extrovert. They've done a beautiful curating job. Hmm. I think maybe one of the reasons you haven't heard about it is that they don't take victory laps. They they just do the beautiful work of setting all of these folks up for success. So I think they deserve more recognition than they're getting. Well, have a wonderful time in London. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm very jealous. Shifting gears here, just to sort of set the stage, and I would say every podcast I've ever done, my typical approach is to immerse myself in my guest's work, pull out all the insights that I personally find provocative, and then I ask questions around these for the benefit of my audience. But I want to change things up this time. As I was reading your book, I think my audience knows that my strategy is I lay on the bed on Sunday and I read my guest book cover to cover straight through, and then I can have whatever's left over of the Sunday. And so I'm generally marinating in the work and really thinking about it. And I was reading your book. I thought, you know, I want to apply what you've written to something like that's legitimate and bring it to life. So here's how we're going to do this. If I can give a quick summary of your book, you believe that most organizations approach change in a slow and steady pace when they could and should be moving fast and fixing things along the way. Your book identifies several barriers to implementing change in this speedier, more urgent way and uses the days of the week to metaphorically identify these barriers before explaining how to eliminate or at least mitigate them. So let me stop there and ask, how am I doing? Like, did I summarize it well enough? Or do you want to You sure something? did. You sure did. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, wonderful. So under the heading Monday, you say that leaders should devote some highly focused time identifying a problem that they intensely want to fix. And you use examples like turnover is too high, engagement is low, workplace managers are getting low ratings, etc. So what I want to do is I want to nail down Monday for you. In other words, 
I've already identified the leadership problem, as I said, that I'd like to solve, and then have you take us through the other days of the week to explain how we can successfully maneuver around the top challenges that interfere with specifically moving fast and making my desired change. Fun. All right, good. All right. So before I tell you the problem I'd like to solve, let me just quickly tell the listeners what each day of the week represents. So Monday, of course, is the problem. Identify the problem. Take the time. Think about it. Tuesday involves strengthening relationships and securing trust. Nobody needs to write these down. We're going to come back to them a little bit later. On Wednesday, we focus on becoming a better team. On Thursday, we do the serious work of honoring the past, articulating a compelling change mandate, and describing a rigorous and optimistic way forward. Friday is pizza night, but it's it's also the day I grew up Catholic. We didn't like fish, so we ate pizza every Friday in my whole life, and so we've sustained that. A great innovation for the faith. Anything that would give us pizza every Friday night is a good innovation. So... This is the day when we execute our desired change with great urgency. So that means I now get to introduce the problem I want to solve. So this is an audience that largely believes most organizations are moving far too slowly in reinventing their workplace cultures and to expecting managers to humanize how they lead. So let's assume everyone listening has a team of several managers reporting to them who've never really been expected to be coaches or advocates for people. They've just been accountable for results, our traditional way of managing, no matter how they get them. So our mission, with your shared guidance on how, is to influence these managers to swiftly adopt new practices and become more caring champions for their employees. Empathetic and compassionate, tapping into your previous book, leaders who know how to drive performance with and through people, not by exploiting them. So admittedly, this is going to be a big pivot for some managers, but this is where we want and need them to go. So here we go. To get us started, do you both want to take a crack at summarizing our challenge in the context of your methodology? And why do you think so many organizations have so far failed to evolve this way? Francis, you are the summarizer-in-chief. <laughs> That's where I was going. Uh, uh, the summarizer-in-chief on the team. So why don't you take a first swing? Sure. So we have a context where the pace of change has been slow and people don't feel that they have an ability to accelerate it. And we're dissatisfied with the fact that we're accountable for results, but we're not doing it in an improvement-oriented way. That is that there is some regret that we're not taking advantage of the fact that we could be making things a whole lot better. I love that. I would add maybe just a little suspicion about some of the the root causes of what's going on here is that you may have a team that's leading from, uh, if not a place of fear, a place of limited ambition about what's possible, that they're kind of operating in the realm of what they can imagine and not really giving themselves license or taking license to dwell in what could be possible. And so I think that's part of the leadership challenge here. Just to be clear, what's the suspicion around and where is it coming from? That their motivation may be coming from a place of fear or their ambition may be limited here. By their own fears or by some fear of failure or uh, is it fear of doing the wrong thing within an organization that hasn't normally managed this way? Yeah, well, that's where we often start our work is asking these kinds of questions. So the way you frame the exercise, which I love, we're super excited about, is that here's the problem. 
and we're going to jump into Tuesday and where we often start with leaders and organizations, even if we're confident, we know the problem and sometimes we're absolutely seeing things correctly. Let's pause on Monday and we give it a full day. We give it a whole step and make sure that we really understand the problem and are really identifying the problem. So in this case, we might say, if we were to give these leaders the benefit of the doubt, these are smart people. They're not unenlightened. They're listening to your podcast, the beautiful library of thinkers out there. What must these skilled, thoughtful leaders be thinking in order to be acting in this way? And we don't know, they're not in front of us, but we would advise to spend a little time on that question before jumping into Tuesday, because there may be some insight here that's going to get us to solutions faster and more rigorously. So I created the scenario here. It's a legitimate scenario. But before we jump to Tuesday, is there something that you would like to even if it's just theoretically, add like a normal assumption about Monday before we go into Tuesday, just as edification for our audience? Yeah, I'd be interested if you can channel these hypothetical leaders Mm -hmm. is from their perspective, you know, what is driving this behavior that you've labeled as problematic? I think it has to do with the fact that we've never expected this before. So managers have never really been directed to be caring and supportive of their employees so much as responsible for achieving goals. So if I have been successful, if my team, the people that we're talking about here theoretically, have been successful in meeting goals, but we're changing the rules and we're saying we're adding this component on, Some managers might say, well, this isn't necessarily what I signed up for. Like, I don't really want to get into the messiness of people, and I don't really care that much about other people to really involve myself in their lives and get to know what their dreams and aspirations are. And so you've got some of that. But then you might also have people saying, I'm okay with that, but I don't know that I can do it. Like, I don't know that I have the skills and I don't want to embarrass myself. So you're going to have different levels of resistance. But let's just assume also that you're going to have plenty of people saying, I'm on board, like this is the direction we need to go. That may bring us to Tuesday. Yeah, awesome. Super helpful context. And I love about those three distinct examples is, and we're going to jump into this in Tuesday, but the remedy for each of those is going to be quite different. The person who's on board but doesn't know how to get there, that's going to be a different conversation, a different development path than someone who's not yet bought into the premise that that's going to deliver better results. Okay. So keep those three then in mind as we go through this. And let's talk about Tuesday. So Tuesday is about trust. And you write in your book that the more leaders earn trust, the faster that they can change things in enduring ways. So that seems obvious, but tell us how trust plays a critical role in getting all managers to change how they currently lead. Sure. So the way we think about trust is that you are more likely to trust me. I'm more likely to earn your trust if you simultaneously experience my authenticity as my logic, as my empathy. So do you get the sense that it's the real me with rigorous reasoning and that I'm in it for you? So that's what we know about trust. And anytime trust breaks down, 
we know it's always one of those three. There's not a fourth one, at least not in the hundreds of thousands of examples that we've gone through so far. So it's always one of those three. So if we were going to apply that to this case, there is probably either, and maybe this is for some of the people as you and Anne were just discussing, a logic wobble and or an empathy wobble. So let me start with the logic wobble. And that is, what is getting in my way is my rigorous reasoning to this. And anytime there's a logic wobble, we ask ourselves, is it that the managers don't have the capability to behave in this new way? Do they not have the motivation to behave in this new way? Or do they not have the license or permission to behave in this new way? So when logic is wobbling, it's always one of those three things, capability, motivation, license. And those come courtesy of the great Ryan Buell, who is our HBS colleague, who has thought deeply about how to categorize these things. So the question I would ask for our hypothetical managers here is, what is getting in their way? Is it that you think they don't know how to be caring? In which case we have to teach them how to do it. They know how to do it, but they're not motivated for it. We want to put the incentives in place. And that could be if, if they know how to do it, but they're not interested in doing it, they probably are not focused on how much more the upside <laughs> would exist. I'm caring for you today, how much greater your performance will be tomorrow. Or they have the capability, they have the motivation, but they don't feel like they're allowed. It's a bridge too far. Maybe I'm not allowed to be so intrusive as to be caring. So that's what it would be on the logic side. Does that resonate? Yeah, I want to dig into one of them. And this, it strikes me as a bit of an aside, but I'm really curious as to both of your insights on this. What if you're trying to make a change and you have people that are absolutely resistant to doing it? Like they just simply, whether it's a logic wobble or a skill set wobble or a motivation wobble, they just don't want to go where you want them to go. People have told me this my whole life that I use food analogies all the time. I'll use the pizza again. You work in a pizza place and you've been doing it for years and you can spin the dough in the air and it lands perfectly and you know exactly how much sauce to put on and you've like perfected the whole process. And then the owners come in and they go, you know what, we see a huge opportunity in chicken and we need you to become an expert at chicken. And it frightens people because it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm an expert pizza guy. I don't know that I can get to chicken. Or they say, well, I don't really like chicken. I stand up to be a pizza guy. So how do you handle that? Yeah, well, I think you handle it this way. So if it's the, I don't know about chicken, I address your capability gap, which is I can do that through developing you, teaching you about chicken. I could maybe have it that we're a chicken and pizza shop and you get to do pizza and somebody else does chicken. So I can do it through the job design, right? So there are ways we can address that or, and this is going to sound harsh, but I can swap you out and bring in a chicken person, right? So those are all the ways of addressing the capability part. So if it really is a capability, it's usually job design, development, or you bring in a different sort of person. And Mark, I mean, the reason we start with trust is exactly what you articulated. Like if your position is I'm trying to lead a serious behavior change here, then in order for me to be willing to be guided by you and follow you down this path with an uncertain future, 
I have to be willing to trust you. So this first step is really getting inside the mind on Monday, which is really because wherever that human being is, is going to determine what the next steps are. So once we get there, the reason we start with trust is because if my issue is what's in it for me, if my issue is there's, you know, it's unclear what the payoff of this discomfort is going to be. So that's a motivation problem. The course of action is going to be to really articulate that. And what what are meaningful motivations for Francis, which may be very different from meaningful motivations for Anne. But if it's that I don't really believe you, you know, like your words and your actions are not aligning, then that's going to be an authenticity issue. And so we really want to look at the problem through the lens of the skeptic or who's ever resisting following you down that leadership path, because the problems tend to cluster under these mantles that we've called logic, authenticity, and empathy. They feel soft, but we know you well enough to know how seriously you take these issues because they're major drivers in whether or not anyone's following you down that path. And that's why we spend so much time on them. So very quickly, tell our audience one thing that they can do. They understand the setup here. So what's one thing that if they were responsible for making a successful transition from the old into the new, what's something that they should absolutely do to ensure that they've put their best trust foot forward? I would say that if they're doing it for a performative reason versus a genuine reason, people are going to be able to sniff it out and not follow them. Mm-hmm. So if you're adopting from results to results and care, if you don't really believe it, nobody's going to trust you. So I would say spend as long as you have to thinking about it until you believe that the new place is better than the old place. Fantastic. Yeah, my answer would just be invest in a robust development program so that people understand what you're talking about, have the skills to do it, have the skills to measure it, know exactly what the future is going to look like in vivid and specific terms. Okay, let's move to Wednesday. Let's make new friends. It's really focused on the importance of team diversity, not to mention emotional and psychological safety. So tell us how diversity and inclusiveness play into our problem challenge. So the way that we think about this in on Tuesday, you know, you've developed a plan on what you're going to do. Wednesday, you develop an even better plan. <laughs> and the, the way you do that is talk to people that you would not typically talk to. And the way to know, well, gosh, who should I talk to that I don't normally talk to? Who should I test my ideas so far with? And it's people, the context is relevant to them, and they're not already at the table. So I'll give you an example The Harvard Business School senior faculty spend a lot of time thinking about how to set junior faculty up for success. We often forget to also include junior faculty in that discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So that's a, so Wednesday is the make new friends day. It's the test your ideas far and wide, especially including those for whom your decisions are relevant, but you wouldn't normally invite to the table. Wow. So what you're saying is, is that our general nature is, is that we get together as a senior management team, we make these decisions, and then we tell them top down, this is the way we're going to go. And you're saying never, ever do that. No, because you will have had so many blind spots and you will have missed so many amazing opportunities for awesomeness. 
what if the senior manager is fearful that word's going to get out? Like, in other words, we're going from pizza to chicken. And the minute I say, hey, how would you feel about us doing chicken? That guy goes and tells everybody, we're going to be doing chicken. We're doomed. So I I think you have to, with some pomp and circumstance, say, all right, I'm going to get a representative sample. And then, dear so-and-so, I'm bringing you in. I'm going to read you into the confidential nature of this. And and do it with pomp and circumstance and seriousness. So you don't have to broadcast it to everyone. Mm -hmm. You can include a sample of them. and, And it's important to be able to discuss confidential information with folks. So do whatever your normal duty of care is, do that here. I love that. Anything else on this? Yeah, I, I would just add that on, on Wednesday, our unit of analysis is really the team. So on Tuesday, we were coming up with a plan to set individuals up for success and really understand the blockers for the individual leaders you're pulling down this path. And on Wednesday, we're really thinking about them as a group and thinking about who's not in the room, who needs to be in the room for this team to thrive. And how do I set everyone in all their glorious, gorgeous human difference up to thrive? So what are you looking for in these inquiries, in these additional content? You're looking for additional insight that you might have missed. You're looking for blind spots. And then you're also looking for better ideas than you could collectively have come up with. And I guarantee you're going to get that. If you expand the number of chairs you have at the table and have each chair represent something different than is already represented at the table, you're going to see, you're going to have better peripheral vision and the upper envelope of the quality of your ideas is going to be higher. So you're asking people, what's your feedback on the strategy and specifically on our execution plan? Yeah, so here's our plan. Mm-hmm. Here's the context. Here's our plan. And I'm going to listen intently to your reaction to it. And I'll ask some probing questions along the way. Great. Any last thoughts on Wednesday? Well, the golden currency of Wednesday is unique information. So you want enough perspectives and experiences around the table where you can get enough unique information to make a better decision. And if that's the golden, whatever the opposite of golden is, the most overvalued is getting other people that think like me. And we really like people who are really like us. So chances are you have way too many people around the table that think similarly. Mm -hmm. Well, you just sort of set me up for my question, which is you've got simplistically senior management making this decision saying, we need to inform ourselves. Let's ask people that are going to be affected by this. But there's insight that you can get from people that might not be affected by it that still have a different point of view. Are you reaching out to them as well? Yeah, so I want to include the people for whom they are affected. So in an academic environment, that would be junior faculty and students. Mm -hmm. But then I also want to include people who think differently. So if my senior management team mostly came from the humanities, I'm going to bring some sciences in. Good. Get an economist to tell you what to do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. They'll definitely have an opinion, Mark. Of course. But you want that. So that's what's so intriguing about it all. We want our minds to be blown on Wednesday by all of the things. Oh, oh. And at the end of Wednesday, oh my gosh, could you imagine if we didn't make new friends, how much poorer our solution would be? That's the goal of Wednesday. Well, but it also challenges to get out of our own, you said it, people like themselves. And so we surround ourselves with people like ourselves. And so we think, oh, I know who to ask. 
but we're not asking the right people. We're asking people who are going to parrot back to the same kinds of views that we have. And so it's expansionary to think, let's go ask the economists. Let's go ask the social scientists. Let's go ask the math guy. You know, they're all professors, so they're all going to have points of view on this, right? And I just love that. It's inclusive, which I think is... That's the word. And it's joy sparking. I have to say, you know, there's a lot of heaviness around this discussion of inclusion and belonging right now, but organizations that are getting this right are also finding it a deep source of energy and creativity and ultimately optimism. Hmm. Let's move to Thursday. You call it tell a good story and uh, had the opportunity to have a discussion with John Cotter. And he famously showed that the vast majority of organizational change efforts fail. And you mentioned the same thing in your book that like 70% of major organizational change efforts like the one we're working through here never succeed. So tell us about the pitfalls and why do so many leaders trip and fall and how can your Thursday process ensure success? I think the way to think about it is that if I want to go from here to there, so I want to go from results only to results and caring, the first thing we have to do is honor the past. Why was it okay that we were doing results only? Because a lot of people that were there in the past are going to be there in the future. So you have to honor the good and the bad. So why, why were otherwise good people only doing results-oriented? And what were we missing from only doing it? So honor the past. And that's one mistake that people make is that they just think, I'm here with my new idea. Forget the past. Mm-hmm. The past will just come back and pull or the, or the me back. <laughs> or the past was stupid. Or the past was stupid. Yeah, yeah. 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 So we have to honor the past is the, <laughs> is the first thing. And then we need a very clear and very compelling change mandate. Answering the question, why now? Okay, we're going to go from pizza to chicken. Why now? Like, why can't we do it next week or next month? Pizza's delicious, Francis. Well, I don't don't understand. (laughs) You know what? I agree. It's delicious. And let's just keep doing it for this quarter, this year. In fact, this three to five year plan. So we have to have a really clear and really compelling change mandate. And what we often say is if you're a retailer and Walmart opens up next door, that's super clear and super compelling why you have to change. But we have to be just as clear and just as compelling. So we have to honor the past. We need a clear and compelling change mandate. And then we need a rigorous and an optimistic way forward. And rigor without optimism, very few people are going to be helpful to you. So futures, it's going to be bleak. (laughs) I really studied it. It's going to be bleak. Nobody's following. But nor are we following. It's going to be great. How do you know? I just is, just did, I just know it is, right? That also doesn't work. So the places where it falls back is when we don't honor, when we're not clear and compelling, or we lack our rigor or optimism about the future. The other thing that we see is people understanding the change, but not being able to articulate it in a way that other people can really access. So we talk about deeply, simply communication, understanding something deeply, but it being able to explain it in a way where lots of people can understand and get on board quickly. We talk in the book about T-Mobile's plan that really brought them back from the dead as a company. And they really pegged the strategy around this idea of being the opposite of everyone else in the industry. And they invented a single word that captured this strategy, which was uncarrier. 
And they, in some cases, literally planted a flag that said uncarrier. And it was a complicated strategy, but they understood it so deeply that they could articulate it in a single word that allowed buy-in, not just internally from the organizations, but also from consumers. Very compelling, very clever too. I like the one word, true north. People can buy into it and understand it and rally around it. And get it. And get it, right? Yeah, completely get it. Going back to John Carter, in his exercise of finding that most organizations fail in, in organizational changes, he said that the principal reason was because most leaders weren't concerned with how people felt about the change that was being asked of them. And so they didn't address the feelings and the feelings were creating the resistance. Does this play into your into your strategy? It resonates very deeply. I would say that it's probably for ours, it fits in the rigorous and optimistic way forward. So if I have to really understand who you are for my go forward plan to both be rigorous for you and optimistic. And if I'm not playing into your humanity, it's not going to feel optimistic. It's going to feel optimistic for the company, but it's going to sound like cost cutting to me. Yeah. And I love that insight on Thursday, Mark, because storytelling is one of the most powerful mechanisms we've invented to influence each other's emotions. I mean, just think of the last time, well, I'll think of the last time I cried in a movie, which was, which was yesterday. And I think <laughs> one of the things that we see in companies is that they don't pause. They come up with a gorgeous strategy and they don't pause and tell the story to both internally and externally. And it's a huge missed opportunity. Any final thoughts on Thursday? A great story takes far more edits than you can imagine. So we're not talking about the second or third draft. We're talking about the 12th or 13th draft. Go into that a little bit more. Are you talking about like a CEO communicating this to all of his or her employees? Yeah, anytime you have a plan to communicate, and these things are usually put together like super urgently and at the last minute, I would say pause and give yourself time to write a second draft and the story will get much better. And then a third draft. And if you say, what do we see is the right number of drafts for telling a great story? It's over 10. And what we see in organizations is anywhere between one and a half mm -hmm. and two. There's such a great point. I would imagine at Harvard, they're bringing a group of professors together and you're all going to be speaking. And somebody says, let's come in and let's just rehearse. And it's not just a technical check. It's like, let's hear your presentation for the first time. And you like, you can't get up on stage and talk like that. That's horrible. And then they right? <laughs> yeah. like, what's going on here? And then the second rendition is like, wow, like it's magical, right? Yeah. And then yes. the third yeah. one is magical. And so if you're going to do this at the level of trying to captivate the entire company, which has much more heterogeneity than the fellow faculty, I would just be shooting for 10 as the number of iterations, not one or two. You're not just speaking to CEOs, you're speaking to every leader who's having to influence a team to do something differently, right? And so you want it to be richer and richer and tighter and tighter. And the beautiful thing with all those iterations is that your 20-minute story became 18 minutes and 16 minutes and 14 and 12, and now you have an amazing five-minute story. So you're speaking from experience here. How many times did you practice your TED Talk, Francis? <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh, yeah, Francis, let's, <laughs> let's discuss TED Talk preparation. <laughs> well, here's the thing about TED. 
they work with speakers for months, for months on the preparation for doing it. Now, Anne gave a TED Talk and I gave a TED Talk. Anne practiced her TED Talk, like word for word. I practiced the emotions I would be thinking when I got up on the TED stage, sentiment for sentiment. But I would say, you know, I was thinking about it for months. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, my answer is probably 100 times. 100 times. And so I have my own little strategy around this. I have a hotel that's nearby and they have all these beautiful ballrooms and I just find one that's empty and I go give my presentation, you know, and I practice and practice and practice for exactly the reasons that you're talking about so that when you're actually on stage, it's just completely comes through you. And Francis, so you described it as thinking through the emotions, but you definitely had a cadence. I mean, you knew exactly what you wanted to say. So you certainly scripted it out almost like Anne did. You just approached it differently. No. So Anne is beautiful with the words. And so when she writes out a script, she's going to be sad anytime she misses some of the words because they're the best words she could come up with. I don't have that relationship with words. So I come up with the themes, but I don't know the specific words I'm going to say. That comes from the moment and how I'm feeling and how I'm interacting with the audience and what I'm noticing about the audience. So it's just as much prep. It's just mine is not literal. Yeah, and I think, Francis, for you in my observation, which is I think where we came up with the phrase deeply simply communication, I think you go very, very, very deep on the deeply part of that equation and trust the simplicity, which comes from- In the moment. It's quote unquote in the moment, but it's also decades of experience in a classroom where your job was to make ideas accessible to people who were in some ways interacting with them for the first time. I think it's not particularly universal (laughs) advice. I mean, it comes from, you know, really a lifetime of communicating- and teaching. You yeah. know, I think the path that Mark and I follow is, is a little bit more transferable. But I don't want to undersell your prep. Yeah, it- and I don't want to oversell your commonality. So if you gave 10 trial talks, you would measure how good they were based on how close they were to your beautiful words. I'm going to give 10 talks, and they could all 10 be different, and I'm going to use an objective barrier of how awesome was each talk. So I'm not looking for the word, I'm looking for awesomeness, but it could be maybe using different examples or using different phrases because it all happened in the moment. I'm still going to do the 10 trial ones, but I'm going for the sentiment. I'm not going for the words, if that makes sense. Anne and I always talk about this, which one is signal and which one is noise, right? Because it's only the two of us. So Anne, what I hear you saying is your signal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to introduce another character into this conversation which I often think about Jerry Seinfeld on Thursday because he is among the greatest storytellers in the world. And he, even at this stage of his career, would never dare get up on stage with material, on a stage with any stakes with material that hasn't been tested, multiple audiences. And we see leaders do that all All the the time. time. Yeah, and we're both testing. So yeah, so what we have in common is that we relentlessly and exhaustively test but Francis, are you, because you don't have a script, do you practice or is this just kind of? I practice oh, all yeah. the time. All in the fact, time. you do. do. I, okay. There okay. isn't okay. an audience I won't get up in front of and give the talk to. But if you looked at the transcripts, it's not that they're converging. I got it. I'm kind of in the middle of you two, though. <laughs> but it is interesting that there's different approaches. But the thing that I'm taking away from this is that 
you're not leaving anything to chance. No. This is right. right? No, I mean, this is, is. I think I've practiced a couple times. I think I can pull this off. We neither of us would go on stage in that circumstance. And I applaud that. Let's go to Friday. It's my favorite day of the week, not just because of the pizza, but because I think one of the least talked about skills of really effective leaders is having a great sense of urgency. And you make that point in your book. So tell us about it and how it applies, of course, to our scenario here. Yeah, I mean, you get to go to Friday. So Friday is the payoff for all of your hard work Monday through Thursday. You now get to sprint because you're far less likely to break things. I mean, we agree with you wholly, Mark, that the urgency is a hugely important variable in change leadership. We would say trust plus urgency, like that's what's going to get you there. It releases the organization's energy. It communicates your priorities as a leader. It is the bridge between all of those ideas that you came up with earlier in the week and you made them better and you shared them with people. And now with the addition of urgency, you get to make something happen. And what we would add on this is once you're in this position, there are better ways to have urgency. So when we look at people who move fast and fix things versus move fast and break things, but if you're doing urgency in the right way, you know, one of the perspectives is that you are super duper clear about the value of other people's time. And so a beautiful sense of urgency is it's not just urgency in the preciousness of my time, it's the preciousness of the time of every other person in the organization. So here's a illustrative example, the difference between urgent and lackadaisical. I have meetings with loose agendas and I invite as many people as possible to them. No urgency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Versus tight agenda, I invite as few people as necessary and then I encourage everyone else to watch it on 2x speed while they're going for a walk. Lots of urgency. So what is my mental model towards other people's time, the most precious resource in the organization? Or, you know, I'm calling the meeting and everybody's lucky to be invited and, you know, we'll figure it out when we get there. So let me ask you a tricky question. And we can apply this to telling pizza makers that they're now being asked to do chicken, or we can use our real example, which is to say, we need you to be far more supportive and humane in the way you drive performance with your team. And so we have this sense of urgency that this needs to happen and that the train is leaving the station. But you're really talking about changing human behavior. You're talking about expecting people to change the way they have operated. So how do you decide the timing of that? How do you decide what's reasonable sense of urgency and what's holding us back? Like we're going to need to make some changes if we don't get where we need to get to. Well, I find that people typically allot way too much time for things. And then things will fill the allotted time. So if I need a change in behavior, well, how we think manifests in how we behave. So if I need somebody to think differently, I should address that. And we almost called this book, How About Now? We've got a better title with Move Fast and Fix Things. But we believe what Martin Luther King told us, which is there is such a thing as being too late. And we feel that palpably. And so we try to think, what can we do now that's going to make an enormous difference. Because if we don't act now, like let's say that we're not taking care of our employees. Well, the longer we take to prepare, 
the longer people are enduring not being cared for. That's on our watch. So the urgency I feel is the urgency of the opportunity loss and the real damage we could be doing to people in the meantime. It's compelling. How do I know I can go fast? There's evidence of enough of a foundation of trust that I can sprint and people will come with me. I think we look for signs of trust in sentiment and performance in the emotions that people are feeling when they're coming to work and also what's happening when they get there. What are rates of innovation? What does creativity look like? What does focus look like? Are we hitting the metrics that we said we were going to hit? When that stuff starts firing in the way you want it to, then you know you can start to sprint. I had Ed Catmull on the podcast recently, and one of the things that he said that like I'll never forget was that they had a senior team that was putting a film together. And this was in the early stages where, you know, everything was precarious. They hadn't really proved themselves. Toy Story had come out, but you know, they hadn't really done much beyond that. And the senior people, if you will, were really leery about bringing in people who had the basic competency to be designers, computer animators, but hadn't had the experience of putting a film like that together. And he said, we just did it. And people responded in ways that we didn't really imagine could happen. In other words, they really accelerated their growth and development in ways that they couldn't have imagined. So this idea of having a real sense of urgency actually plays into human nature, which is when people understand there's an urgency, they get a move on. If they don't feel there's an urgency, it's like, well, you know, we might take a year or two to get this going. When people just don't jump into it, they don't go to the discomfort. Am I right? Yeah, I would say that that matches with our reality and a couple of additional points. One, I bet they did much higher quality with urgency than if they had done it with more time. That is, it is a myth that time makes it better. In fact, in our experience, more time mm-hmm. makes it worse because you know we're not all aligned and rowing in the same direction. And great people don't want to go slow. So if you're going to take a long time, the people that are going to self-select to go at that metabolic rate, you're going to be pretty darn sad who you've gathered. I absolutely love that. That's so true in my experience. And, you know, if you have a mediocre team, well, then you're going to struggle. But if you have people that are like, bring it on, we're ready to go, we're excited about this, I totally agree with you. Yeah, one of the jumping off points for the book is how do we deploy that team so that they're fixing things and not breaking things. Anna and Francis, we're going to take a quick break from our conversation and move into what we call the heartbeat round to help us learn about you more personally, both of you. I'm going to ask you several questions that we want you to answer instinctively and quickly, in other words, cleverly, in a heartbeat. And I'm going to take a few questions directly from your book. And Francis, you're a veteran of our game, of course. But I need to ask Anne, are you willing to play? This is consensual, Mark. I'm willing to play. (laughs) Very good. All right, here we go. So we're going to start with you, Anne. And first question, in your opinion, what's the best high-quality snack? Chocolate-covered almonds. Your definition of hell? Renaissance festivals. (laughs) A book of fiction you believe all of us should read? The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. A book of nonfiction you wish everyone in the world, or at least all of us, would read. The Warmth of Other Suns Mm -hmm. by Isabel Wilkerson. Great book. The emotions you observe most frequently in workplaces you visit. Frustration, optimism, 
hunger for meaning and connection. The trait you most deplore in yourself. <laughs> this is again from your book. These are these aren't questions that I always ask. So. I know. So yeah, that's right out of Proust. So I'm mm. actually working very hard to not deploy any traits in myself right now, which is a new frontier in my work on myself. But I would say it is my tendency to get stuck in my head. So kind of a lack of mind-body integration. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Self-distraction in an other-oriented practice. But I think the follow-up to that is a lack of repair practice. So unwillingness to fix things when they get broken, including relationships. Cultural value every organization should have. Grace, making space for our own imperfections and the imperfections of other people. Your synonym for the word heart. Courage. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. Uh, we're going to be okay. It's going to work out for humanity. I actually had somebody on the podcast tell me just the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, we are so doomed. So I'm actually happy to hear the optimism. And finally, one subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on. I would say inclusion, that the practice of it, the mechanics of it go beyond the headlines and really dwell on the why and the payoff for your organization. There's a lot of hype and heat around it, and we got to find the light. Thank you. Those are wonderful. If I had like points, I'd say, okay, well, Francis, you've got to beat 28 points. I'm not feeling good. <laughs> All right, Francis, here we go. In your opinion, what's the best high-quality snack? Vanilla yogurt with pistachio nuts. Your definition of hell? A cruise. <laughs> a book of fiction you believe all of us should read? A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. A book of nonfiction that you wish everyone in the world, or at least all of us, would read? Written in 1903, Calculus Made Easy by Sylvanus P. Thompson. Is it literally a book about calculus made easy? Yeah, and it shows if even a fool's fool can learn calculus. And it's one of those things that it was described in a complicated way, but it's actually quite trivial to understand. And it's, a, it's the roots of Simply Deeply. Wow. The emotions you observe most frequently in workplaces that you visit. Well, you should know I mostly visit workplaces that aren't going well. Mm -hmm. So stifled optimism, I think, is the most common and restlessness. Stifled for what reason? Because if I'm optimistic, I have to kind of shield it to everyone else because the organization isn't going well and pessimism has taken over. A trait you most deplore in yourself? Judgment. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? Self-distraction. Cultural value every organization should have? Joy. Spark joy. Your synonym for the word heart? Devotion. Prediction about the future, you're pretty certain is going to come true. Inclusive organizations will thump everyone else. Yay. We could have a separate conversation about that since every company in the world seems to be getting rid of all their diversity leads, but I digress. One subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on. Trust is the thing, but it's the levers of trust and how to build and rebuild trust quickly. Fantastic. Well, I'm sorry you didn't beat Anne. <laughs> I never do. I never do when it comes to the words, but you give us a math problem, Mark. Uh, and we're feeling pretty yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. I haven't read Calculus Made Easy, I confess. <laughs> so. Neither have I. Uh, these are great. So both of you, thank you for going through this with me. Really loved it. Our pleasure. Well, we're nearing the end here. And what I want to do is make sure we have time to turn the stage over to both of you and ask if you have any final words of punctuation 
and last words of guidance as they go to work changing their own leadership cultures? I'll go first, Anne. Whatever it is you're thinking about, whatever it is you're like, um, you know, this is, this is like the thing, but maybe I'm a little scared. I would advise simply begin. Mm. Yeah, I think my advice is a variation on that, which is, you know, just to find out what happens, you know, find out what happens when you take less time to do more of the things that are going to make your relationships and your teams and your organization stronger. Thank you. As I'm listening to you, I need to make this point that nobody is the greater beneficiary of this podcast than me. And I'm so grateful to you both. And I just want you to know it's an honor for me to have had this last hour with you. And then I get to share this with thousands of people all over the world listening in and learning from you. And so on behalf of my audience, Anne and Francis, thank you so very, very much. It's a total pleasure. It's our privilege to be a part of this conversation that you have been having in such a graceful way and to be a part of it as a gift to us. Thank you. I wish you the best of success with the book and great success in London next month. And hopefully we'll we'll hear really good news there. Once again, thanks again for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. As we close, I want to thank the employees of Chevron who work in over 50 countries around the world and specifically to Alan Flickinger and Rhonda Morris. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic Take the A Train, written by Billy Strayhorn in 1941 and is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. And one more thank you, as always, goes to my team that brings you this podcast, Ken Boynton, Randy Yont, Carrie Finnessy, Anna Boynton, and my producer, Eric Oz. And a special thank you to our podcast friend, Felicia Sinousis. Remember, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And I know it sounds simple, but it really makes a difference. Love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley. See you in the next episode.